Mr. Singh. Hi there, sir. How you doing? Very good. So welcome to the Recovery Project. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. So just for our audience, the Recovery Project is really just a coming together of a group of think tanks that are really reaching out to others from all political bands, uh, from people from different, you know, academia, different experiences, domestic, international, really to kind of wrap our heads around what is going on with people to economies to our institutions now as we deal with the public health crisis but actually looking into the future mr singh as well like like where do we go what kind of economy we're we going to have afterwards and so as you know i work at the institute of fiscal studies and democracy at the university of ottawa and so mm -hmm. we partnered with the center for global progress it's a washington dc think tank in canada 2020 which is kind of a well-known canadian think tank and really they kind of bring these voices together. And so it's just an enormous privilege for us to have the leader of the New Democratic Party with us today. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about policy, a little bit about institutions, and um, really maybe a little bit about politics towards the end. And then of course, there's, you know, the audience is going to want to put some questions to you. But I just wanted to start to just, how are you doing? I'm worried about people during this, this pandemic, during this crisis, I'm really worried about what people are going through. And on a personal note though, I'm healthy. My wife and I are, are healthy my family's doing well. My brother, my mom, and dad, everyone's, everyone's staying healthy. Uh, but we're, we're worried about what people are going through. Yeah. I think in, in 2019, like the whole country got to know you. And I think we realized that you are somebody that really connects to people. So I'm not surprised that you say that you're worried about people. This morning I got up and I was reading the magazine, The Walrus, and there was this terrific piece by Scott Patterson who uh, wrote this piece called The Anatomy of the Pandemic. And he's a doctor and he's a writer and he's from the West Coast. And he said, you know, contagion may be a leading cause of death, but the worst thing it ever does is prompt us to recoil from one another. Much the greater injury to our health, to our communities, to whatever it is that stands in the way. And, you know, sir, like just from your sense, you know, as being you know, uh, somebody that crisscrossed the country many times, in 2019, 2020, and in, in, in previous years as well, but you know, more recently as leader at NDP, like how do you find people and businesses? Uh, what are they saying to you? What I've been really struck by is that people in a difficult time like this are really coming together. There's been a, this sentiment as Canadians that we want to take care of one another. And I think that this pandemic has actually highlighted that. There are so many acts of generosity and kindness, mm -hmm. so many examples of businesses and people really trying to look out for one another. And I think that is a sentiment that we want to build on, that, that compassion that Canadians feel for one another, that desire to help each other out in this time of need is exactly the type of sentiment that's going to get us through the initial crisis. But then when we look forward to how do we move forward from here, I think that same feeling of wanting to take care of one another is what's going to inspire, I hope, the type of policies and the type of decisions we make coming out of this. I agree. With respect to policies, again, obviously these are historic times. Like we've not seen anything like this, you know, in the past hundred years, in terms, including government responses, you know, in Canada and around the world. And it was like there was something else I was reading recently from this something called like the Boston Consulting Group, and they were providing advice to companies. But when I read it, I thought maybe it applies to Canada as well. And I just would like to get your take. And it really it talks about dealing with the short term versus the long term. This. Boston Consulting Group says that, you know, companies are countries that master both the transitory 
in the transformational response to a crisis reap the long-term rewards. And so the transitory, like in this context, is really, it's dealing with the public health crisis that's front and center. It's, it's putting out that, that burning fire that takes you know, just about every, our, all our efforts. And it's all consuming. And but, you know, the transformational is really, like they make the point to companies, is really, it's the harder part. So, you know, they say transformation, they're the smarter, they create opportunities uh, to win in the long term. There's an economist called Mohamed Al-Ari, and he, he used to rephrase like, you know, we can end up winning the war, which is flattening these epi curves, but he, he says we might lose the peace. And so when you see, sir, like these enormous responses, PBO yesterday, you know, re released a, a fiscal report just reminding us how much money is going out the door to, you know, to support businesses and households. Like, what is your take? How are we dealing with the transitory first off the public health crisis? And, you know, is the, is the NDP in, in your role in, in Parliament, are, are you satisfied with how things are, 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 are taking place? The response has been one where I think the government has taken some good decisions, but many of those decisions has required a lot of pressure from, from us as New Democrats to push them to get there. And, and while I'm happy with some of the outcomes, I think that the approach has been one where the government seems to be really focused in on excluding those they think are not deserving of help at the risk of letting those who need it most fall through the cracks. I think that approach has been one where I think the, the priorities are, are reversed. I would, I would reverse them and say our goal should be when it comes to releasing support or help, the goal should be we should be making it easy and quick and simple to help as many people as possible. So that's why I've said in the beginning, we need to have a, a program that's universal, that anyone who needs help can apply for it and, and to remove some of the barriers so that those who need it most aren't falling through the cracks. And, and if there's any concern about someone who doesn't need it applying for it, well, we can certainly figure that out next year. Right now, our priority should be making sure no one falls through the cracks. That's been my, my major criticism, but we've been able to push for some of the changes and we've been seeing those, those changes, which is encouraging. I just wish that the priority was different, that it wasn't about finding ways to exclude, but instead finding ways to build a, a, an inclusive program that helps the people who need it most right away. I've heard that personally, that the NDP working hard behind the scenes uh, to make sure that once the economy was effectively shut down with social distancing measures, that they pushed the government really to release monies quickly, worry less about you know, moral hazard or fraud or these sorts of issues. So, and again, I, I thank you for that. I think that is a very good economic response. But in terms of the size of the package, you know, you can probably something in the neighborhood of $150 billion, um, you know, dealing. And again, yesterday we heard from the PBO that, you know, uh, they think the forecast, the decline in real GDP could be upwards of 12% annual for 2020, it's just a very, like an enormous number, you know, maybe three, four times almost what we've ever seen in terms of recession before. Like right now in terms of the, the size of the package going out, like are you worried about the size from a, from a fiscal perspective? Are you worried that maybe it's not even enough? Are there sectors that we're missing? My worry is that if we hadn't have responded the way we did, if we didn't put out help to people, the cost of that would be far worse. And I think about some examples If we're asking people to stay home for the public health reason that physically distancing is going to help us deal with the transmission. Because right now, without a vaccine, the only real tool we have to stop the spread is to limit transmission. If we ask people to stay at home, but they don't have the means to stay at home, they don't have the way or the means to be able to pay the bills or to pay their rent, 
and people, for example, don't have any income coming in, don't have the ability to pay their rent or mortgage, and then lose their homes. In a crisis like this, we don't just have a homelessness crisis, but we'd also have a public health emergency where people no longer have a place to live would then end up potentially increasing the likelihood of spreading the infection by maybe going to a loved one or going to family or to friends. So really, the response of giving people immediate help now is an investment that is far better now than if we had not invested the cost to society and the negative impact would have been a lot worse. So I think we absolutely need to always be aware of how much we're spending, but I think in a, a crisis like this, in a pandemic, when we're trying to save lives, the upfront investment of taking care of people now is far less costly than the impact not acting would have had. Nice. So Mr. Singh, in, in the 2008 financial crisis, there was, you know, I think a lot of blowback from you know, people were using this metaphor that we were, Main Street was, was paying off Wall Street or Bay Street. And so you know, governments around the world um, went quickly to help the financial sector when the financial sector was really you know, at the heart of the crisis in terms of underestimating risk. I mean, this time around, it looks like in terms of the construction of packages in Canada, but I think in many other countries as well, that there's more attention to providing money to households. And uh, maybe, in, you know, I think, so are you, you must be gratified to some degree that at least like the package looks more balanced than what we saw in terms of dealing with the 2008 financial crisis, that we have measures, you know, like, you know, the Canadian Emergency Response Plan, that we are providing monies for, for students, that there is money for homelessness. Um, like again, are you are you gratified at least at least right now that we look like we must strategic we have this package about right? I think that there has been a certain focus on people, which is something that we push for, and and that is encouraging that we have direct financial support through the CERB. I again wish it was universal so that anyone who needed it could get it. But you're right, it, this is a a response that's more people focused. The wage subsidy, for example is a type of subsidy that New Democrats support in that it is tied directly to payroll. A company that has employees on the payroll would get a wage subsidy, but if you don't have any more hired, you wouldn't get it. So it's very much tied to employment, which is important to me. But I'm not uh, at all going to rest on this because it's the next phase where we know there'll be significant investments made. And it's in the next phase, once we get beyond the immediacy of the crisis, where we need to be vigilant that not a single dollar goes to companies without having conditions that require that company to have employment in Canada, jobs maintained or jobs created in Canada. My big worry though is when given an opportunity to signal the direction that Canada is going, the prime minister failed. And what I mean is other countries have signaled really clearly, and I'm talking about Poland and France and Italy and Denmark, that they will not be giving public dollars to companies that are registered in tax havens. When I asked that very same question to the prime minister, he was not able to respond. And to me, a lack of response suggests that he's not willing to do that. But what I find really troubling is on one hand, the government was prepared to tell a single mom going to school that she deserves $250 less, and that a student living with disabilities deserves $250 less. So they're willing to save money off the backs of these vulnerable people but at the same time, the prime minister is not prepared to tell billionaires and millionaires who use tax havens that they won't get public help. That to me is very troubling. And that's why I'm not in any way at ease. I am going to be very vigilant and our team is gonna be very vigilant that in the additional measures that come forward, 
that it's not an approach like the 2008 no strings attached, give money to corporations and bail out Wall Street at the cost of Main Street. We're going to be very vigilant about making sure that doesn't happen. As the days, the weeks, you know, the months kind of roll through, there's more and more talk now when our public health officials look at these epi curves that things in many parts of the country, not all, but are, 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 things are getting better, that social distancing measures are working. There's talk now of like opening up, you know, through multi-phase approaches, parts of the economy. So as we move, as you say, to like the next stage, like where do you think those transformational opportunities are? And again, I preface the question by saying, I, re, you know, like I remember you're the 2019 NDP political platform. And I remember like the calls for more monies for the health sector uh, to deal with income inequality, to deal with climate change, climate change. And I also remember that people were saying, well, the NDP, they were raising, you know, revenues upwards of $30 billion. And now we find ourselves, you know, with increases in government spending in the neighborhood of $150 billion. And so where are those transformational opportunities? Are they there back in your 2019 platform? Or do you see in a post-COVID-19 world even other additional opportunities or challenges? I absolutely see that there's an appetite for change. And, and what I've been really signaling is that instead of thinking about when do we get back to normal, I want us to build forward to something better. And I think one of the ways we do that is by taking better care of each other. So the opportunities we have, we look at some of the sectors, we know that healthcare has been, has been shown very clearly to have been starved of funding. It's one of those examples where people are already there and they say, you know what, our healthcare system clearly is not where it needs to be. And so we need to do something differently. One of the specific transformational things I think people are very much ready for, they were already ready for before, but now with millions of Canadians losing their jobs, which means they've lost their benefits as well, well as their, their, their income, people are ready for the idea of a universal pharmacare like a universal healthcare system, one where everyone knows that their medication will be covered. And we will join the ranks of every other country in the world that has a universal healthcare system where medication is also covered. I think that's really important. We're hearing and we're pushing pressure, putting pressure on the government that in the interim, there should be a first step that people who have now no longer, who've lost their access to benefits, more than ever, we need immediate relief during a pandemic that Canadians can actually afford the medication. But that's a transformational change that should start with an investment now, but we should move to a completely universal program. I think long-term care, we've seen really the glaring neglect of our healthcare system is most apparent in the death and the loss of life in long-term care homes. And that's where we know we need to have better investments. We need to make sure we do away with the for-profit model because some of the worst conditions have been where the for-profit model allowed for corners to be cut and seniors are the victims of, of that and taking the toll of that, that cut to quality care. So ensuring that we've got quality, uh, guarantee across the country that there's a national standard around long-term care homes. The workers are paid enough so that they don't need to work in multiple centers. But also our social safety net was designed in the 70s for a reality that no longer applies. And I speak about workers who don't work a traditional nine to five anymore. So we need to have better protections in place. And EI is again shown to be insufficient in responding to people's needs. So a broader program where more people can access it if they ever get into a situation where they're no longer able to work. And then finally, I think paid sick leave. More than ever, that concept, and I can say I was a bit guilty of this, when I wouldn't feel well, I would still push through and go to work because I thought of it a mark of toughness. But really, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit irresponsible if we think about the context of a pandemic. If you're not feeling well, 
you should be able to stay at home. And in fact, it's the responsible thing to do. But for a lot of people, they can't make that choice if the question is between going to work and paying the bills or staying at home and being safe, but then not knowing how you're going to pay rent. That's an impossible choice for people. And so paid sick leave, a broader social safety net that includes a more robust form of protection for people that's better than EI, and healthcare investments that include universal pharmacare, dental care, head-to-toe coverage that take into consideration people no longer have jobs with benefits, and we need to provide a more robust series of benefits so that people can actually know that they're going to be taken care of. Mr. Singh, as well, in your platform and in other statements, you've talked about um, files like, like certainly in the platform, climate change and infrastructure. Already, like today, you talked about coming together of a lot of people. I've seen some polling results as well that um, people are broadly supportive of the government's approach, parliament's approach, and again, in minority parliament approach. Um, so, like, do you think, like, is this coming together, the fact that, you know, that People are looking at the science. They realize, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic, something very serious. We're 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 taking good advice from from our scientific leaders, public health officials. Can this translate to some progress in terms of changing our infrastructure so that we're dealing with climate change as well? How would we bring that about in a post-COVID world? Absolutely, uh, a huge yes to that. I think people more than ever are ready for uh, a different approach, and the different approach is when we make decisions now we need to look at those decisions as not just being the next couple of months or the next couple of years, but the investments we make now, the injection of public investments now will shape not just the next two or three years, but the next 30 years, 40 and 50 years. And so what I would like to see happen is if we make the priority of our investments, what investments will make people's lives better, which will improve the quality of life, make cities more livable. And so the investments that I want to see are in things like public transit. We know that if we can get around easier, it's also going to help us reduce one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, which is transportation, and it will make people have a better quality of life. It'll create local jobs, but also just a more robust economy and a more robust society. I also want to see investments where we retrofit buildings. One of the simple starts is every federal building in our country should be retrofitted. It'll reduce emissions, create, again, local jobs, but also help us reduce our costs because it'll be a long-term investment in the sense of the long-term savings of having less cost for heating and cooling and providing electricity to those, those buildings. And then if we expand that beyond buildings to all homes and all municipalities and incentivize provincial governments to allowing that to happen, there's a serious opportunity to provide great opportunities for work, but also that long-term investment, that the work that's happening will have a long-term benefit of reduced emissions, better quality air and communities with more livable cities, but also that reduced costs will have a long-term benefit. And we'll see that return of that investment in a really significant way. But really, it's an opportunity now. We've got a chance now. We are going to be making investments. Like, let's make investments that allow us to have that dual benefit of the immediacy of getting people to work and having good quality jobs, but also investments that will create better communities that people can live in those communities with a better quality of life. Are you worried about uh, this concept of a fiscal reckoning? People are they're shocked by just how much public debt is going up. And um, like for, for me, to be honest, sir, like I'm, 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 I think I'm a bit like in your camp. I think we're going to need some investments that probably need to be deficit financed at the end of this COVID-19. And I think there's this opportunity uh, because we have these low interest rates. So like, do you think you're, are you going to face a significant challenge in Parliament, maybe from the Conservatives, maybe others? 
maybe you know some constituents just worried about debt like how do you communicate to people that you know Canada we can live with this uh, you know this increase in debt that we are fiscally sustainable well I think there's evidence that suggests that we can I don't think that that's a problem I think but more importantly I want to look at you know what happens every time we've come out of a crisis if you look back in history there's been two responses one is where we make better investments in people and put in place better social programs and there have been times after a crisis where we've seen cuts to care and cuts to programs we can actually just look at history and see what have the outcomes been and i would put to people when we've cut as a society when governments mostly conservative but you know liberal as well when they've cut services and programs out of a crisis it's actually meant a worse recovery it's meant more difficult times and more pain for people but when we've invested as a society collectively in taking better care of each other the evidence is we've actually built better societies more equal societies fairer worlds where people are able to build a good life for themselves and their children and their families and so i, I would look at evidence and say the best way to come out of a crisis is to take better care of each other and is to have the willingness and the courage to say right now is the time to invest more in each other not to cut the programs that people need out of a difficult time more than ever we need to invest in our healthcare make good decisions about infrastructure spending and investments that will build a better quality of life while we're actually creating good employment and the long term benefit of reducing emissions and costs so i think this is the time more than ever to double down on taking care of each other and to resist the the perhaps the right wing and the conservative approach of clamping down on these type of investments and the right wing that's saying they might say that it would be disastrous to take care of each other i think it would be in fact disastrous to not take care of each other and we should do more to lift each other up how do you think our institutions are holding up under the stress of this uh, emergency this public health crisis and where do you think our institutions will be on the other side and by the word institutions i, I don't mean just buildings and you know in our legislative processes I, I mean like obviously the role the parliament plays in holding governments to account but also federal provincial territorial relationships our relationship with first nations people like you've talked already multiple times today about like these are these are opportunities to unify the country like do you see post covid-19 opportunities to unify the country that seemed a little bit divided uh, in recent times I think the evidence is there. We we've seen that there's been a a great degree of collaboration between different levels of government. There has been uh, perhaps the one area where there's not been enough is with indigenous communities, but we need to be more vigilant about making sure that indigenous communities are included at the table and a part of decision making. But what we're seeing is a desire for people to see us work together. And parliament as much as we've been pushing the liberals to deliver and I've been critical about the the lack of urgency with the response they have actually responded to what to our push to say broaden the CERB to include students and to include seniors or to include people that have been missed so there is an evidence an evidence you bound to say we have worked together and i think more than ever canadians have seen that when government works for people there is a benefit in their lives so i think there's going to be more trust in the ability for governments if they're given the the right push to make the right decisions to actually make people's lives better. So I think there'll be increased opportunity for people to buy into social programs now that they've seen the benefits in their own lives directly. So I think that in that sense will be a strong opportunity to come together and that we'll see on the other side of this those types of institutions are stronger. Where I see some weaknesses is there's been 
internationally, some institutions have been challenged. And while I don't think it's wrong to take a good hard look at our response to the crisis and making sure we are critical about mistakes made and look to improvements, I think we do need to rebuild international relationships. We need to realize that in a global pandemic, it is incumbent on all of us to work together internationally as well. And that though there might be some that seek to divide in that area, we really can't afford to have a lack of a unified response, particularly when we know many of the challenges we face are challenges that impact all of us. A pandemic impacts all countries. We're all interconnected, so we need to be able to work together. And the next major crisis that could have and has had already significant impacts on people is climate change. And the impacts of climate change on people's lives, their ability to live in certain communities, means that we also need to work together globally. So that's the one area where I think we need to double down on the importance of working together where there might have been some erosion of trust but nationally in our own country i think we're going to come out of this with more investment in terms of political capital and in terms of the people who believe that we can actually work together to build better programs for people i certainly agree with you sir that it's just it seems odd so far that given you know the global nature of a pandemic because by the very nature it is a pandemic it's affecting almost all countries that our responses seem to be so much more like within the nation or like within a province. If I could take you back to just to that, that issue of federal provincial territorial relations. I think it's, it may be the case that coming out of this um, COVID-19 you know, pandemic that we find some provinces, some municipalities in very difficult shape. That just the increases to their debt loads will make it difficult for them, uh, either in the case of municipalities to provide services or in the case of you know maybe a few provinces to make sure that they that they can pay uh, interest on their public debt, are we headed to a time where we need to rethink you know, the, the you know fiscal federalism in this country in the, the way the federal government works with provinces and territories those big transfers of money? Absolutely, we're going to need to rethink the the way that services are delivered. Particularly, I think one of the hardest hit in this in the three levels of government are municipalities. They, they've seen a massive reduction in revenue and they don't have very many sources of revenue. So for, for municipalities, I've spoken to many big city mayors that are saying, you know, without any doubt, they're gonna be in a position where they're no longer able to pay their bills or to deliver the services in the summer. So they're going to need a, a, some form of financial backstop. And it really calls into question the resilience of municipalities because they, they don't have a very sustainable form of revenue generation. And so we do need to take a hard look at that and what that means for the viability of cities in the future. We're gonna to have to do a better job of giving more tools to cities. So one of the tools that we've seen that's worked is the gas tax, but really there needs to be something more robust, something stronger, something that gives them a, a better ability to cope with these unpredictable circumstances. So I think certainly in general, there's a, a major role for leadership that the federal government has to play. It's really incumbent on the federal government to bring all levels of government together and to provide a path forward. And so I, I will be pushing for that, that when it comes to solving some of these problems, when provinces and cities don't have the revenue they need to be able to deliver their services, it's really gonna be up to the federal government to sit down and figure out that path forward. 
Thank you, sir. So I've got some great questions from uh, our audience. And if, if it'd be okay, I, if I could just sort of put some of these questions to you. And uh, sure. you've touched on some of them already, like the issue of, of universal basic income, which I know that has been ongoing support by the NDP. Um, there's a question, again, from Carl Flecker. He says, um, C-19 has made it clear uh, that shortcomings in our healthcare supply chain and access to various kinds of equipment, from protection equipment, testing equipment, personnel. Um, it has also made more apparent that internationally trained and experienced healthcare professionals are here and willing to help, but struggle with licenses you know, to continue their professions. You know, the question really is, would you support holding a national roundtable to rebuild our healthcare supply chain? Yes, direct answer, yes. One of the things I think I can point out very specifically to you that I'll be pushing for, so you've heard it here first, is that I really believe when it comes to medically essential equipment, there was a mistake made you know, decades ago that all of our production and manufacturing, because of the globalized context, was offshore and it was in different countries. And then we've seen the weakness of that. In a pandemic, if all of our production and medical essential equipment is made in other countries and there's a short shortfall or we don't have enough, then it's very difficult to obtain that. And so we need to really double down on the importance of local manufacturing, Canadian domestic manufacturing of our medical essential equipment. And that means encouraging that type of manufacturing, that the government should purchase that type of equipment locally and domestically, and to ensure that we've got a vibrant supply chain in our own country. It's We've seen with the unpredictability of the president in the United States, who made a made a dictate to discourage 3M from delivering equipment with problems when we have a pandemic of obtaining supplies from our usual sources. We need to be able to build that locally and have the capacity to build it locally. In a positive side, we've seen some companies in local businesses step up, but we should have that existing supply chain ready to go. And so that's one thing I, I definitely think we should call for. And then when it comes to the internationally trained talent that is in Canada that made it here because of their international training, but then when they have immigrated, it's no longer recognized. And that to me is a, is a failing in our immigration system where we acknowledge someone's talent as a basis for their immigration, but it no longer is valid when it comes to their employment. And we're really missing out on the, the quality of, of these amazing folks that come to make Canada their home that aren't able to work in their fields, particularly in the health field during this pandemic, we felt the loss of that. Uh, thank you, sir. A great question, great answer as well. So another question from Darcy uh, DiMorsico, and Darcy says, several of the measures Mr. Singh has discussed are provincial responsibilities. For instance, setting standards in long-term care homes or gaps between dis disability insurance and CERB, um, the Canadian Emergency Response uh, Payment Benefit monthly amounts. What does our federal system mean for how we recover? And so I don't think Darcy's taking you head on saying that this is about intrusion, but like, what does it mean to work in a federation to facilitate recovery? Well, we, we can look at some examples of, of standards that we've already set nationally. With our Canada Health Act, we do have standards around making sure that healthcare is delivered in a manner that is public, that is accessible, that's transferable. So we do have standards set that are federal standards. Similarly, the way we set those standards is by working with provinces and territories to develop the standards and then to include them into the Canada Health Act. We've got a framework for doing so. We just need to include long-term care. 
So it's going to require in a federation working with provinces to get to the standard, but we absolutely can achieve that. And then to roll that into the Canada Health Act would allow us to have that mechanism for accountability. When it comes to the supports, we've got a federal program, EI, but the EI program has shown to be inadequate. We looked at this crisis and found that only 40% of Canadians can actually qualify for EI based on their employment, which means the vast majority, 60%, don't qualify for EI. There's a problem when we've got a federal program where the majority of Canadians can never qualify for it. So we've got to find a better way to deliver help to Canadians who lose their job, something that is broader than EI. And that's why the, we pushed to see the CERB. I remember when I asked the question in the beginning of this crisis in early March, the government said, oh, we'll just make it easier to get EI. And I highlighted again and again that no, EI is insufficient. So I think we absolutely need to broaden our approach to how we give people supports when they lose their jobs, something that is more inclusive than existing programs. So there's ways to take our existing programs and broaden them. And there's existing structures we have where we can use them to encourage more accountability for healthcare. We have another question, which I think speaks to um, the issue of universal basic income. It's, um, the question goes, what does the public need to understand? So kind of a communication issue in terms of the long-term financial benefit in investing into social policies, such as universal basic income. So what does the public need to understand? And then it's, the context is the rights-based argument is great for us on the left. However, the financial benefit could be shown and better articulated. Like, what are we missing? Why is it taking us so long Notwithstanding great efforts by the NDP and even progressive conservatives like Senator Hugh Siegel and others have been talking about this for decades, why are we still, why haven't we crossed that finish line on basic income? One of the problems we have is that there is a lot of misinformation of stereotypes. And in order to, to dispel some of those stereotypes around the idea if people had some, some uh, quality salary or some basic income, if they had some supports, that it would mean that people wouldn't work or other myths around the, the negative impact of this. What I've been calling for and what we called for in our campaign is let's have a national pilot project and use the evidence obtained by this pilot project to see if any of those myths are borne out. I would assume my hypothesis would be that no. In fact, what we've seen in early evidence from the Ontario pilot project that in fact, it encourages better quality of life for people and people are able to lift themselves up because of that initial support and are able to get better jobs and are able to build better lives for themselves. So it's actually a, an incentive or an investment that actually returns on people being able to live a better life and be able to improve their quality of life for themselves and their family. So I think that's one way. Let's have evidence and make the decision and show the public that if we've got a program like this, what are the outcomes of it? It's going to improve people's lives. Um, I think there, is, there are some programs, universal programs like the Pharmacare, that now more than ever, we have a lot of evidence why it works, and we've got a lot of need. As people have lost their jobs, they've lost their income and their benefits, and there's millions of Canadians in a pandemic that can't afford their medication. That is something that could, should never have been the case, and we can solve that. I think there's a lot of goodwill around that, and that's a national approach or a federal approach where we want to use the buying power of all Canadians to be able to negotiate better prices and to use that purchasing power to then deliver a system that's going to save us money and improve our health care so that people who are ill are able to treat their illness instead of allowing that illness to get worse and worse. And then the most costly intervention is when 
and the illness is not treated on the early stages, and in the late stages, it's so costly to our healthcare system. We could actually save lives, help people, and save a lot of money that way. So there's, I think there's an opportunity to make the case for universal programs, not just income supports, but healthcare programs, now that people are seeing the, the desperate need that we have, and there's a willingness to work together. Nice. Another question from Gavin Charles, who I think wants to get a little bit inside the tent of what is it like, like behind the scenes in terms of working with these institutions. And he quotes, starts by saying, Elizabeth May has said that the level of access that opposition parties have to the upper echelons of government during the crisis has been unprecedented and very positive. Do you agree? And if so, has the access been meaningful and useful? Are you able to connect directly with the Prime Minister to give feedback and propose policy alternatives? How is it going behind the scenes, sir? There's certainly more access than before, there's no question about it. Uh, partially, it's, it's because we're in a minority government, so the government needs our help to be able to pass initiatives. So there's, a, there's a, an additional crisis combined with the fact of a minority government that requires greater collaboration, which is a good thing. I would say my, my critique would be, while there is access, what we're seeing is it's not collaborative in the sense before an initiative is put forward, the government consults with me, for example, as leader and says, you know, is this a good idea or what would you do to change it? They announce things and then we push them to say, well, there's a huge flaw in this. You've started with a 10% wage subsidy. It should be at least 75% as the UK and Denmark have done at a minimum. And so it's more pressuring and pushing the Liberal government to then change their position to a better one. So while I'm encouraged by the fact that there seems to be listening after we push, it could have been better if they started with a collaborative approach where before making an announcement, they work with us in terms of hearing our feedback. I think one of the, the things that I'm noticing is that I use a lot of my personal experiences. I remember difficult times when my brother and I were living together and we didn't have money and didn't have a lot of income. And I was worried about putting food on the table for my little brother. I was in university and he was in high school. And I remember the, the idea of not having income and, and my salary not being enough to pay for things. And his friends in school asking their parents to send home food for us. And that would be the food that we ate. Because I have some appreciation of the struggle that people are going through, I pointed out that the CRB at $1,000 was not enough. Because we know what it's like for people that are living paycheck to paycheck, we know that the universality is so important because people falling through the cracks means dire and desperate things for people. So I think that's something that's been missing in, in our interactions with the government. They don't appreciate the urgency, but we're pushing them and the pushing seems to work, which is encouraging. So it is a unique scenario that we're in. Hopefully that gives you a bit of a sense behind the scenes what's going on. No, it does. That's great. So I think we don't have a lot more time, but just a different type of question. I thought maybe we could, we could get this one in. The question goes, there is a potential for the transition to low carbon economy, which you've spoken about on many occasions, to create tremendous social and economic value for Canadians. However, getting there will require significant investment in capital. Can you speak further to the role you see Canada's resource sector playing in that transition? and driving the necessary investment? I think the starting point is that, that all Canadians, no matter what sector they work in, whether it's resource sector or the energy sector, they wanna know that they've got a job that's, that's sustainable. That's in simple terms, a job that's gonna be there for a long time. And what we've seen through no fault of resource sector workers or energy sector workers, their sectors have been faced with a lot of volatility. And we know that the global markets are very volatile, particularly when it comes to energy and to resources. 
So we owe it to those workers in those sectors to build something more sustainable. And that means, first off, ensuring that they're at the table, that resource sector workers and, and energy sector workers and industries are at the table. But we need to look at ways that we can create more sustainability. What does it mean to have a job that is long lasting and how can we create that type of long lasting job? And those type of decisions are going to be difficult. But if we keep in mind, we don't want to leave any worker behind. If we as a society collectively agree that we need to make massive investments, then we can lay out a, a plan for that. We can lay out a course for that. And so we know that some of the proposals have been the same, very same infrastructure that's required for uh, oil wells are very similar infrastructure for geothermal energy. So that idea of converting those to, to opportunities to create energy. We know that the cleanup of abandoned wells is also a potential opportunity for work. But we need to do something more than just kind of tinkering with those solutions, which are good, but are not really profound, massive changes to provide really committed long-term changes that will give people that sustainable employment. So that's something that we have to be prepared to do. It's going to take massive investments. And I think, like I said before, this is the time to do that. The choices we make now, the investments we make now will help define the next couple of decades. And if we make the right choices and the right investments, keeping in mind some of those criteria, what's going to create a long-term possibility for employment for Canadians and for workers, I think will make right the right decisions that will develop a brighter future for us. So that's terrific. And maybe just we can end on this question. And the question really, it's really from me. So and as I listen to you and as I've watched things play out in the media, that it seems to me that the NDP has played a significant role in broadening and deepening um, this support package. And is there a set of priorities that you see as we move to recovery? And again, it's, I, I can appreciate the metaphor that when the house is burning, you focus on the fire. You know, it's leaders you need to look, and you've spoken today about transformational initiatives. Are there two or three priorities that you see that will kind of drive the work of the NDP through the early recovery stages? And what might they be, sir? Certainly, I would say first and foremost, healthcare. We need to transform our healthcare system. And the easiest and, and boldest initiative would be universal pharmacare and perhaps dental care. When it comes to our safety net, I think we need to broaden the EI so that it's more inclusive and provide supports for paid sick leave. Given the pandemic, we know how important that is, but broader supports for people who are working in precarious contract, freelance, in non-traditional modes of work, they're now more and more becoming the, the common denominator. So we need a broader safety net for those folks. And then when it comes to our investments, our investments have to be long-term investments. So investments that create jobs, Infrastructure investments, I think, are crucial, but infrastructure investments that create a better quality of life, like public transit, while also reducing our emissions to give us that long-term return on the investment. I think those are three things that I would focus in terms of criteria, but really the focus is what's going to help people live a better life and how can we generate or push all of our investments towards the clear outcome of good quality of life that improves people's situation and lifts up Canadians in a really significant and real way. All that's left right now is just to give you a great big thank you. It's been an honor to speak with the leader of the New Democratic Party, Mr. Jagmeet Singh. And I just, I wish you and your family well through this time. And I, th I thank you for your service. So thank you for speaking on behalf of my Recovery Partner Projects. Thank you so much for giving us the time today. Thank, thank you, sir. Mr. Page. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks to everyone that was tuning in and listening. Thank you so much. Stay well, sir. You too, sir.